welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. On this episode of Why Make, we talk with Daniel Marinelli, a maker working in many mediums whose artistic path began in clay. Unwilling to give up control to the kiln gods, he started building functional and sculptural objects in both wood and metal. After earning his MFA in sculpture at East Tennessee State University, Daniel attended a three-year residency at Penland School of Crafts. We explore his work during that exciting point in his career. Much like our conversation with Sylvie Rosenthal in episode 21, we delve into the issues of the work of risk versus the work of certainty and Daniel's move to Greenville, South Carolina after leaving Penland. We also talk about the value of finishing bad ideas and Daniel tells us about the creation of his company, OK Goods, and the meaning behind the moniker. So we invite all three of our listeners to join us for the next hour as we take a look inside the creative mind of Daniel Marinelli. So let's just jump into it. Um, Sounds great. So uh, Daniel Marinelli, uh, sculptor, uh, woodworker, uh, man of many mediums. We'd like to welcome you to uh, Why Make. Yeah, Daniel, welcome to Why Make. This is the Why Make podcast. It's Rob Helmkamp, um, Eric Wolken, and Daniel Marinelli. Right, and 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 three lone listeners in in Australia. I I do believe. <laughs> yeah, we, we have three fans, and they listen not at the same time because there's not enough bandwidth in the right, world yeah. to do that. Right. Um. So we customarily like to start this with. The why make question, which is, Daniel, what is your first memory of making something? Oh, wow. Um, growing up in, at the time, rural Pennsylvania, uh, we had a pretty long leash as far as what our parents let us do. Um, <laughs> Sounds well, like my childhood, too. Yeah. <laughs> the only rule was my dad could put his fingers in his mouth and whistle really loudly. My dad, my dad could too. It was, I still can't do it to this day. I can't do it. I've tried for 40 years. Um, you could hear it two blocks away or and the, quarter of a mile. That's right. So the only rule was you can only go as far as you can hear the, your father's whistle. So, um, <laughs> and that was, that was sort of it. So it was, we were surrounded by woods and we would just romp around. And I guess, yeah. So I guess my first memory of making something was really just sort of, cobbling together some tree forts we called them forts in the woods yeah. and uh you know just finding plywood and lumber and just piecing stuff together and making making forts in the woods where in pennsylvania uh it was um it was outside of philadelphia maybe 45 minutes so okay um at the time, it's it's a lot more built up now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, 35, 40 years ago, it was pretty, it was pretty rural. Have you ever been back there? I, I have from time to time. Um, I've been in the South since, really since 98. So for 22 years now, I feel like. So I experienced this when I went back to my house, my old houses. I always imagined it being bigger than it was. Like we had the dirty hill that we used to rope climb down and stuff. And then you go back there and it's only like 12 feet tall. 
That's right. Have you had that experience where it's just like, it seems giant. That's right. And then you see it later and it's like, oh, our tree fort was in a, it was three feet off the ground. <laughs> or the distance between places seemed so much greater back then, right? Yeah. Like I would walk to my friend's house um, as a five-year-old and I thought, man, this was just the coolest thing, you know? And, and it's, it felt like miles. Uh, and now going back, it's just like, you know, it's just a few houses away. Yeah. It's like but, a couple hundred feet, maybe at the most. <laughs> So was was art always in your background as a child, or did that something come later, or what what was the the progression there? It was encouraged, um, not necessarily as a a way to make a living or a livelihood or a occupation per se. Um, it was encouraged, so definitely not suppressed, but definitely not like this is the route you need to go. Um, but growing up in that area. Um, you know, we would go into Philadelphia as a family and go to the art museum there. And uh, Rodan has a museum in Philly. Um, yeah, it's a great museum. The yeah. Philly and Rodan. Yeah, Actually, both. my my aunt, who was an architect in Philly, lived right behind the Rodan Museum. Okay. So, and then right next, to, and of course, then right down the avenue was the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I used to love visiting her there because it was just uh, it was just such a wonderful area. The Wyeths, Andrew, NC, Jamie Wyeth, that was sort of in the area where I grew up. And so I remember going out to the Brandywine River Museum. The Wyeth House there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And seeing that and uh, seeing his paintings. So speaking of living outside of Philadelphia, were you anywhere near Bucks County and Nakashima's compound? No, no, we weren't. Um, We were sort of... uh, southwest of the city uh in delaware okay. county near chester chester county delaware county i think bucks county is north of philadelphia i yes. believe oh, um, yeah. no so never did get out there um have uh i don't know if either of you have been to the warden Estrick house no but we talked about going making yeah, a field trip have. sometime when it's okay to do so again man yeah actually rob and i just talked about that a couple days ago yeah it, yeah it's amazing um and i don't know like uh Nakashima's compound. Is that something you can go visit? I believe so. I, you know, I don't know. Um, and again, you know, not to play inside baseball here, we're talking about George Nakashima, uh, the famous uh, Japanese American um, furniture maker, designer, uh, architect. Um, and his, uh, his company is still run by his daughter, Mira, and well known work all over. I mean, his, his work is iconic. I mean, the butterfly joint, yada, da, yada, da. But anyway, <laughs> you know, so at what point did you start getting into art and start getting influenced by other artists and who might those influences have been? I would say in, in high school, started getting into drawing and painting, was taking uh, art classes, art lessons, um, and didn't know what I wanted to pursue after high school and thought about landscape architecture, thought about mm-hmm. architecture. Um, it really enjoyed math. And so that, that felt like a good fit, but, um, pulled the trigger on, on an art degree. And, um, in college was, went in as a, uh, drawing and painting major. And that stuck until, I took my first elective in ceramics class and that's when I made the, the jump to three-dimensional work. Um, so Bob Jones university, we noticed that you went there. Were, was there art classes that you took there? 
That's right. Yeah. So that's where I went to undergrad. Um, and they did have an art major there. And uh, the one thing, uh, one of many things that I learned there was that um, they did not let you be a slouch in your academics. You couldn't skip, <laughs> you couldn't skip class. Um, it couldn't was be not an allowed. artist. And uh, yeah, that's right. And so right. pretty, pretty strict and, and, but they didn't play games when it came to your academics. They didn't play games when it came to a lot, a lot of things. But uh, with academics, you had to go to class, and and um, so I did learn a lot of discipline there, and um, and yeah, just really sort of started cutting my teeth there with uh, three dimensional work, uh, ceramics, and sculpture. I mean, we might be skipping ahead to this story a little bit, but uh, it's kind of curious, you know, in looking at your CV that you do have this rich background in ceramics, yet you, I, I haven't seen any of your ceramic work. I um, haven't either. Um, and I've known you for numerous years. Yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, they disappear? Having, <laughs> yeah, having spent time, you know, what happened I guess to, to give a little backstory, I think both Rob and I met you when you were uh, a resident at Penland. Mm-hmm. And I loved walking through your studio and we'll, we'll, we'll get more into that later because it really brings back these wonderful memories for me. But I don't remember seeing anything ceramic in your studio nine years ago <laughs> at Penland. So I'm kind of curious where that whole ceramic vein went. That's right. Um, great, great observation, Eric. Uh, I've heard it said that ceramics is the, the gateway craft. <laughs> the gate, the gate. It's it's the bacon of art, I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, uh, got into ceramics in undergrad, and then did go on to do a residency at the Odyssey Center, which is in Asheville. Yeah, that's a great a great clay center. That's right, and associated with high water clays there as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, uh, and really enjoyed it um, making mostly pots, some sculptural work. And mm-hmm. so was that, was that work pre- as precise and geometric as some of, as your work is now, or was it like you were figuring forms out? Cause I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine Daniel Marinelli's pottery and I can't do it. <laughs> or I, I've got a picture of it in my head. I guess that's what I'm saying. And it was looser. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I, change direction in, ah. in a way is because I couldn't, I, I have a tendency to, to be, uh, or a desire to, to a perfectionist. Like yeah, that. that's yeah. right. And so you could, you could control it. You could control your forms and you could control what you're making. And then at some point you're putting it in this and a lot of t- back then I was doing a lot of atmospheric firing, um, mm-hmm. like Raku and, and Anagama. Yeah. You, you might want to, we might want to explain that a little bit to our woodworking a- audience who goes atmospheric firing. Does that mean you smoke it? What? So yeah, it's, it's a lot of, uh, it's either wood, you fire with wood or you fire with gas and then introduce salt or soda into the kiln at a certain temperature. And that vaporizes and gets all over, your pots. Um, and in the, in the ceramics world, in the pottery world, they, they call them kiln gods and they actually make these little creatures and put them up above the kiln when they're firing. Um, not all of them, of course, but, um, these kiln, Asian influenced this kiln god and, and you're sort of giving over your offerings and mm-hmm. you're hoping that they take it the rest of the way. And, <laughs> 
it was frustrating because I would, I would get my work out of the kiln and uh, it didn't turn out the way I thought it would or should, or, you know, and granted, you know, some of the time or a lot of the time there was some very pleasant surprises, um, but it wasn't what I had thought. And and I just, I I wanted to be more controlling than that lack of control irked you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I think that's, what's kept me away from it too. The lack of control. It's like, I want to know what I can do with and what I can't do with something before I send it down this black hole. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And some people get it so dialed in that they know exactly what they're going to get when they open the kiln. Um, Yeah. yeah. uh, I know a couple of potters like that. Yeah. Super precise. That's it. Well, that's interesting because that really dovetails into uh, a a recurring theme on this podcast. We've talked about a lot is woodworkers needs for control and the whole notion of, of perfection and the pursuit of perfection and just how really fruitless that, a goal that is because ultimately we're working with natural materials that we don't have any control over that swell that split that crack and perfection itself is you know i need to i need to make a small disclaimer first eric has said it but he will he will say dovetails at least once during every episode of why make, and he has, and he did it and carry on. Well, and then I'm going to say, <laughs> you know, a million times and, Oh, <laughs> and uh, yes. Dovet- well, you, you know, I'm a, I'm a really shitty woodworker. So I get <laughs> to use these big woodworking terms like dovetails. And I literally have cut three in my 30 year woodworking <laughs> career. So I, I get to, I get to use the term liberally, but not actually physically. <laughs> But no, I, I mean, I think it's an important discussion to have about the whole notion of perfection and control in this word craft, which again has uh, another is another loaded term craft versus fine art. And I think, again, to tie something together and just let you run with it, Daniel, you have this. I, I did read part of your thesis, Rob, actually, uh, PDF me your thesis and and I uh, I texted Rob back. I said, "Wow, can you just give me the Cliff Notes version?" <laughs> but no. So you have this notion of blue collar woodwork and the beauty of just going at something and working with your hands and making something happen. So can you tie those two things together for me? Perfection, control, and blue collar woodworking. Uh, yeah, it's I'm conf- I'm conflicted. Um... When it comes to working with your hands and and perfection, um, and there's there's a lot of ink's been spilt on that subject. Um, David Pye wrote a book. Um, was it Art and the Craft of Workmanship? You had talked about that book with me a couple of yeah. times too. I, kn- I know you've mentioned it quite a bit. And um, it's on my shelf, and I've opened it once. <laughs> time to read it, sir. That's it. It's a good read. Um, the workmanship of risk. And he talks about that and how, you know, when you work with your hands, um, you're, you're taking on this, this risk. And that's what differentiates, you know, the, the handwork of, of an object versus something that let's say, a, a machine cranks out. Um, and I'm conflicted with that because now I'm doing a lot of work that, um, it's funny. I'm, so I, I got out of ceramics cause I c- couldn't control 
the end product is or end result as much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And now I get into this other medium, whether it's wood or metal, and I but I'm not I'm still not doing a whole lot of like I'm having these machines now do the work for me, whether it's a mill or a lathe or bandsaw, that sort of thing. And and so I don't do a whole lot of um direct hand work necessarily some of the finishing and and dressing out of things um so it's it's like gosh i'm having these machines do a lot of this work and and so that workmanship of risk is maybe removed a step or a degree that workmanship of risk is is removed a degree but um i guess the risk where the risk comes in is there's still a risk of like utter failure in oh yeah absolutely (laughs) either a wreck but also like uh, utter failure in the sense of like composition or design Mm -hmm. like it could be well made but it could be like a really bad idea and i feel yeah there's there's plenty of those (laughs) Uh, i've made plenty of those too (laughs) i have too i mean it's (laughs) so uh, well executed but just a bad idea from the get-go so it doesn't there's a higher there's a higher level of risk in that than, you know, just programming a CNC machine and letting it go. Yeah. And you know? there's an, there's a, another interesting idea that just, you know, it just struck me is that executing a bad idea. I mean, when you get halfway into <laughs> a bad idea and you realize it's a bad idea and you realize there's many aspects of it that just don't work, I really struggle with seeing it through. And I think there's a benefit to seeing it through, but I just go, oh, this, this, this isn't working. <laughs> and uh, if it's the appropriate season, it gets chucked into the wood stove. If not, it gets chucked yeah. into the firewood pile for the next season. Yeah. I just can't see through it. But I, I you know, again, uh, there's a real, I think there's a benefit through seeing through a bad idea. Hmm. Well, th- there is. I mean, th- sometimes though, like a third of the way through a project, you're like overfinished, gone, done out. I want to move on to the next thing. But, you know, if it's a, if it's something that you want to see through, you've got to, I mean, sometimes there's no choice, you know, otherwise, you know, I mean, I don't know how big your shelf of set asides is, but I've, I've got quite a few and, yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll get back to it some other time, but. Well, right. And you know, the, the hope that uh, the solution to that problem is going to come at some point down the road. Yeah. And there's, you know, th- and that bad idea, I, I don't know. I think there's something valid and or valuable and keeping uh, not necessarily um, putting it somewhere prominent in the shop, but sort of holding on to those things. Cause I think think in the future, those could manifest itself in a, in a different way that may not be um, such a bad idea, but they could adapt or or evolve a little bit into something that isn't, um, painful to look at <laughs> well sometimes but but sometimes it's and it seems what from what i've seen in your studio daniel holding on to that pain sometimes is cathartic like mm. you you frame some of your mistakes mm-hmm. like you've got torn up gloves on a wall in a frame to remind you to not stick your fingers in that one place <laughs> you that's know right. that's right yep um, i mean or or words i've you've you've stenciled words like what are some of the words that you have stenciled around your studio uh, above my lathe in a cabinet that i keep all the lathe tools when i open yeah. this cabinet t- 
to swap out tools for the lathe. There's a there's a stencil on the on the cover or the um the the cabinet door, and it says "Don't be stupid." Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, just these subtle reminders that are you know that are with you all the time as you move around right. your studio. That's They're, right, and partly like "Don't be stupid" in the sense that everything in the shop can hurt you and wants yeah. to take your head off. Um, don't be stupid in that like be be sort of self-aware as you were mm-hmm. that you know yeah. be be aware that like this to Eric's point like this could be a bad idea or uh, this <laughs> this um yeah so don't be so tied to a, an idea that um you can't see you can't sort of pan out and see it for what it is as opposed to thinking it's precious because it's you that's making it yeah. so it almost works across the line of like your safety but also you know your career and making and your, you know, your thoughtfulness and in, in your work and your creativity. That's right. Although it does really, it does really tie back to that, to that point you made as a, as a, as a potter, there is something amazing about potters who are willing to let go of the process in the end and go, whatever the gods give me out of the kiln is meant to be mm-hmm. or not meant to be and is yeah, going right. to <laughs> get smashed. I've often thought with potters, they will never let their mistakes out there. They will just always smash them, uh, which is interesting too. It also made made me think of what would a, I, a, as a conceptual notion, what if I put all my mistakes into one piece and called it the big mistake? <laughs> uh, would it, would it, would it, uh, it w- I think it'd have validity as just a mistake. It'd be a bunch of ideas that just didn't work. <laughs> then you'd have to make a big pedestal to put it in your house because it wouldn't sell anyways. So, <laughs> right. I mean, I know mine wouldn't. <laughs> well, yeah. it's sort of, uh, I don't know if you guys do this um, with your, um, whether it's a tool or a router bit or a, ba- like a table saw blade or something. It, inevitably, as you work, uh, you're going to have like mistakes like you're not going to pay attention and you're going to break something or you're going to you're going to really booger up a consumable um and for me it's it's end mills and drill bits and um Mm -hmm. things like that where you you know you're not paying attention and you wreck something and um i keep all (laughs) i keep all that stuff (laughs) and eventually i'm going to do something with it but i've got this sort of drawer of shame that I call it where I just sort of throw all these really messed up things in broken bits and everything. That's right. I I do have a drawer like that. I won't elaborate on it, but it's, you know, there, there's some actually one piece I will. Okay. I'll elaborate on one piece sometimes. And I mean, you work with a table saw, you get kickback, you know, it's, it, it happens. Mm -hmm. So I've had a couple of pieces that they look really cool. And so I've just set it up on, you know, where I can see it. It's like, this looks awesome, but don't do it again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like, be yeah. scared, be, be, be mindful and don't take it for granted. That's right. Let's not go down this rabbit hole. Okay. I mean, okay. Obviously, yeah, it, it, you know, you shit get happens. <laughs> yeah, shit, it's a- shit happens. Uh, woodworkers and sculptors often talk about accidents in the shop and uh, none of it's pretty. So let's. And Speaking, we move on. <laughs> and we move on. So um, so when I first walked into your your studio at Penland, this is you know nine years ago when I was there as an assistant. You and I, Daniel, you were there like two thousand nine to two thousand twelve. Is that, that that's correct? Yep. That's yeah, right, right. Yeah. 
the first thing that struck me was those amazing mechanical drawings on the walls of your of screws and bolts and all sorts of other mechanical objects. Not only what was amazing about the objects, it was that they were really process drawings because, you know, the first thing, the first art I was ever involved in, and I don't even know whether you can call it was art, was I took mechanical drawing in, in high school. I took four years of mechanical drawing with Mr. Z, my favorite teacher, Mr. Zahara. It's my favorite teacher by far in high school. And I love the process of those drawings. And you leave all the projection lines of, you know, how you get from, you know, you, you draw these projection lines from one view to the next. And that's how you transfer all the lines for your front view, your, your top view and your side view. And you leave that all there. And the drawings are so precise and so wonderful as just as pieces of process. But what's, what drew you to all those wonderful mechanical drawings? What was the, what was the idea behind all those pieces? I, I think it was uh, day in and day out, just handling all of these um, fasteners or little tiny tools, um, whether it's a drill chuck key or um, a tap handle or a, a, a bolt or a screw or a nut. And, and just sort of taking those things for granted because they're just sort of commonplace in the shop and you're just always um, handling these things and, and uh, a lot of times just overlooked and yeah, just taken for granted. And so when you stop and look at these overlooked objects and you start really diving deep into the geometry and the, and the function of these things, I think they start to become these very beautiful little objects. And so I started diving into the geometry behind them. And then I, I just found just some, when, when you're doing uh, sort of blueprint drawings of these little objects by hand, uh, Eric, you may remember, like there are some really cool tricks to like projecting a helix or um of a screw or um, just sort of, I really enjoyed the, the analog tricks to getting down on paper, what this thing looks like and what this thing is as a three-dimensional object. And to sort of get that to, to look like a three-dimensional object, obviously on a flat two-dimensional surface, but using analog sort of, graph and and mechanical drawing tricks to get there i think there's some really beautiful beautiful things out there you you expanded it from like yeah you use these for things but you you took it and twisted it and gave those pieces expression you know it's really interesting i'm or i mean i'm 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 get i'm digging deep saying you turned them into art mm-hmm. you really you made it so it's like you, you know that's a screw but then you look at it and it's like wow there's a lot going on with that screw yeah, or that, that Chuck key. It's a, I mean, it's pretty, pretty interesting that you kind of gave a new way to look at a couple of those things. Yeah. You, you elevated the object That's and, a good word. Uh, yeah. and, and I like this work use of the word analog. Cause it's, a, it's you a, know, I mean, back in the day we used to call it just drawing and now we have to define you know, the difference between using your hand and eye to analog to versus digital and <laughs> right versus, and it, it's just so interesting, the perception, because I think in actually physically drawing an object, you get to understand it so much more than uh, a digital object, which mm-hmm. is 
it's a different representation. It's a different interface than the eye hand thing. Mm -hmm. If you, if you want to speak to that. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I've dealt with this a little bit with, um, a lot of, a lot of my work now is architectural components in steel and, um, for new residential construction. A lot of times talking with certain architects, it, they were, they're saying it's so easy to uh, push pixels around on a screen that you can change and adapt and um, mm -hmm. your original idea or original intent so quickly and easily that before you know it, you're so far removed from your original idea just because it's so easy to just maneuver and um, manipulate your original plan. Um, and so there's this one, uh, an architect friend of mine in Asheville who all his, all his drawings, he pushes out or hand drawn really beautiful. Um, maybe not the most efficient, but they are very beautiful. And he is maybe a little more, um, it's sort of like int intention, but, um, he's got like a clear path, um, where, where he wants to go or what he's, what his idea is. And he's, he's got that He's, he's sort of already chased out all the ideas mm -hmm. beforehand. You just don't see those drawings. He gives you sort of the drawing that he settled on and there's no pushing pixels around on the screen. He's already done that sort of freehand. And so he's given you this, this drawing um, that, that is ready for production. And, and so I think there's something to be said about the effort that it takes to sort of work things out in analogs, uh, similar to some models that I work on, whether it's um, for, a, for a proposal for a larger piece, I think there's something really nice to present a three-dimensional model of that thing as opposed to just some screenshots of, of that object. Um, well, it's, it's interesting you're talking about doing it analog and the way that this architect does it. It reminds me of like, okay, he's got pages in a sketchbook, say, where he moves up to his final drawing. And, you know, and to me, that's a great analog record of it. But when you do it on a computer, you've got layers in the, in whatever CAD program or, or GIMP or, or Photoshop or whatever, you've got these layers that you constantly change. So you've got a digital history of it, but where's that analog history where you can flip through the pages? I just love that idea of it. And that sounds like that's what you're getting at. I don't know. Yeah. It, it has a lot of resonance. It has a lot of, um, I don't know, to me, it's more human. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's your path. Cause actually I was going to say, you know, I've done a lot of CAD drawing, especially architectural CAD drawing and I'll push around lines a lot. I'll push around pixels and I have no history of that. Right. Right. I mean, because it doesn't actually get recorded in no. a specific it's layer. Lost. So I don't know the history of that one line I manipulated to get exactly what I wanted. So that whole sense of that whole sense of well, history is not the right word. That whole sense of evolution. That's what I want. The whole sense of the evolution of an idea doesn't really translate that well into the digital world where you're right. I mean, I, I think an artist or an idea person's most valuable tool really is their sketchbook, that thing they're pushing the pencil. And I'll be honest, I don't, and I don't think Eric has either like neither of us do a lot of digital drawing. So I'm sure there's stuff on iPads or things like that, that record stuff like that. But I haven't even, I've got a sketchbook and a pencil <laughs> and, and occasionally I'll do it on Google sketchup, but I mean, there may be other ways to record those steps, you know, 
through digital drawing that I'm not aware of, but analog forever, analog no, forever. No. <laughs> not necessarily, Rob. Like I, I do feel like a Luddite at times where it's like, gosh, I, <laughs> I, the L word. Um, that I think it's a balance, you know, cause I don't, I don't want to, and, and certain people in my life, my, my wife being one is, is encouraging me to sort of adapt yeah. and like think about things, um, through the lens of let's say efficiency where it's like mm-hmm. is I know you want to do certain things a certain way, but maybe there's, there's more efficient ways to do other things, you know? And, um, so I, I am trying to, um, even though that's not how I'm necessarily wired or, um, that's <laughs> Me not neither, my, but, but I, it, it, the way it ends is you got to pay the bills. <laughs> that's right. Well, and, and I think a lot of times people think of, I mean, digital solutions are just hammers. They're just tools mm-hmm. That's, uh, yeah. and they have, they have to be used in an appropriate sense. So, uh, you know, it's like the notion of you hammer a nail, you don't hammer a screw. And I, you know, I actually do use CAD a lot for architectural stuff, mm-hmm. but when I'm working on a sculpture or something, it, the idea gets worked out in my sketchbook but the proportions get lofted out on the computer because I can do that really quick and go as well, should that be 10 inches long or 24 inches long? Mm-hmm. And you, you know, and, and that to me seems an appropriate use because the computer isn't generating the idea, but the computer is yeah, giving it, me that important piece of information on proportions and scale. And I think as, you know, as the tools become more complicated and also lend you more possibilities, you just have to learn the appropriate use of them. I mean, mm-hmm especially now with 3d printers i'm sure in the in the metalworking world laser you know laser cutters water jet cutters all these things that you can now remove your hands from the actual process but the, again they're tools and you have to learn the appropriate use for them mm-hmm. well, and, and daniel so you don't have a whole lot of the computer-based stuff a lot of your machinery is like old machinery that you've you know, reworked and, and, uh, and kept going all these years. Talk about, talk about some of the old machinery that you've, I mean, you seem to have a fascination, dare I say a fetish with old machinery. That's right. I, I, I think maybe, uh, part of it is, could be just an intimidation of the new stuff where it's like, if, if something breaks in here or on the, on the motherboard, if something gets fried, I don't really know where to start. And so I'm, I'm intimidated by that. It's sort of like old cars. Um, oh, yeah. I, I can wrap my head around spark plugs and a distributor cap and cylinders. <laughs> and For sure. but but as far as like when you start getting into uh, replace the motherboard, f- fuel injection and <laughs> uh, computers and sensors, that's where I get lost. And um, and so I am drawn to the older equipment where it's just um, you know a motor and cast iron or um if something does break it's usually something that can i i can uh, wrap my head around how to go about replacing it or fixing it and it just that stuff just works i I find it just it just doesn't wear out it's built it was built to last and uh 60 70 years later it's still and granted it's not a production machine you know it's not like something where you you'd want to just set it up and um it could crank out the same stuff all day long, but it works for, for me. Cause a lot of times what I'm making is not a product line or, or yeah, it, it's yeah. sort of one-offs and, and I can, a lot of times it's, it's nice to just sort of be there and crank a handle on something and get, get the, 
machine to do its process on one object relatively quickly as opposed to having a machine that is computer operated and I'd have to go into a program and program this machine to do this one simple task where I can just throw it on my manual mill and do it fairly quickly. So for me and for what I'm using it for, it seems to work. And I I just, I just, I don't know. And also just aesthetically, I feel like those old machines. Those things are as as big as like VWs. Yeah. (laughs) Some of those things are giant. (laughs) But you had these pattern makers, you know, uh, making the, these cast, you know, the, the patterns um, of these old castings and, and just, I mean, a lot of this stuff just looks like, old fuselages and and just um beautiful curves on old automobiles and that sort of thing and i just mm-hmm. i think they're aesthetically i think they paid more attention to that um than they maybe do now uh, i think they they're more concerned now with function which is val valid valid i suppose but yeah that old stuff just it has a look to it in the castings that i'm i think you're are pretty cool yeah, and, and actually that sort of leads really interesting into my next question because I noticed that a lot of your sculptural forms give the illusion of being functional and they also allude to sort of mechanic, mechanical, industrial, and, and post-industrial objects. Um, so is, is that where that's coming from, the notion of you like the idea of hand-cranking your machines and you love the aesthetic of these old sort of industrial objects. Yeah, I think you've, yeah, I think you've hit it, Eric, for sure. I think, um, yeah, just that again, just similarly to these little, um, objects that get overlooked, um, whether it's a bolt or a nut or a little hand tool in the shop and wanting to draw attention to that in my drawings and paintings, there's a whole slew of objects that, get overlooked in a, in a shop or get discarded and, um, or uh, wore out and thrown away and new ones replace it. And, and, and so it's sort of trying to harness some of that just because I think there are these beautiful old machines that, yeah, just get overlooked. And so to try to maybe draw attention to that and make objects that look as if, they served a purpose or had a function. Although, cause a lot of times too, I'll go into a, I'll be honest, I'll go into an old machine shop or, or, uh, and I'll see stuff that I don't know what its function is. Um, <laughs> I have no idea what this thing does, but I'm drawn to it because it's, it's beautifully made and well-made and mm-hmm. it, it probably, whatever it was supposed to do, it probably did it really well, but there's that mystery of like, well, what did it, what did it do? And what did it crank out? And so I, I guess I'm sort of alluding to that too in some of these objects where it's it's this mystery of what what did this thing um, what did this what is this thing or what did it make or what part of a bigger uh, uh, machine was it a part of? I love seeing stuff like that too. Like, and I remember in at Ace Hardware one time I ran into Castle Nuts and I had no <laughs> idea what those were, and I was like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. I've got to figure out what they do. That's right, and. You know, that led me down a giant rabbit hole of finding out everything about castle nuts that I could. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I notice in your work are nautical themes. I know there's a couple of ships and like rig looking things, um, maybe space capsules or even um, wheat silos. Hmm. I mean, it, so it, it, it looks like a lot of it might be hooked to um, family experience or um, or just things that you've run into throughout your life can you can you 
talk about a little bit of that stuff? Yeah, gr- great question, Rob, and uh, very perceptive of you. A lot of it is there is quite a bit of narrative uh, in these personal narrative in these in these pieces, um, whether in my own in my own life or in the life of my immediate family, my wife and kids, or in um, extended family, the ship uh, and the sort of nautical theme that has its origin in the fact that uh, my father came over from Italy on a boat in in the 1950s through Ellis Island. Um, I know that sounds like I'm really, (laughs) it sounds really uh, antiquated and old, but that's, uh, so he came over, uh, he was fleeing sort of post-World War II, Mussolini's Italy and, and getting out of there and coming over to the States. And so but it's part of your your heritage and your family history, so that's 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 important. That's right, and just the efforts that they went through to get over here, and um, just being on a boat um, coming to and landing outside of Philadelphia, not knowing anyone. It's just yeah, just that and that idea of travel and um, risk. But man, when I say that, I, it just makes it, it sounds so old. I I'll digress just a minute. I was uh, teaching as an adjunct professor at Appalachian State in Boone a few years ago. This was when I was at Penland and I was trying to be relevant and it was the first day of class. And I just look around and I see all these 19, 18, 19 year olds. And I thought they were, you know, I would view them as peers, right? Like I don't, I don't feel like a 40 year old. And I was going through role and I couldn't pronounce this one fellow's last name. I said, Paul, I, you're going to have to help me here. I I don't know how to say your last name. I'm not even going to try. And he told me his last name and he said, it's Polish. My father came from Poland. And I, to try to, uh, strike up some common ground, I said, oh, that's cool. My dad came from Italy. Did your father come through Ellis Island? Um, and the whole class just sort of put their cell phones down and looked up at me like I was, what, what in the world are you talking? Like, is this some sort of joke? And he said, no, it was 1987. He just flew into Detroit. <laughs> well at least he knew what ellis island was and, yeah. and uh actually my grandparents on both sides of my family did come through ellis island yeah so from from actually well who knows what it was then it was poland lithuania yeah the helm camp um, side of my family did as well but i i can see how that could be a reference lost on uh like what lost Is that lost on <laughs> ellis island but, that's right so um, going back to uh, going back to Penland, I mean, one of the most amazing things that Penland has to offer is those residencies. I mean, you get to spend basically three years in an incubator where you really sort of have the freedom and some backing to sort of realize what it is you want to do. So what what did you go into Penland wanting to do and what came out of Penland what was the what were the what was the end result of your three-year residency at Penland Penland was a an incredible experience um, the residency program yeah it allows you to sort of dedicate three years of, of your life to your your practice and and in in a way they do make it easy on on you because your rent is is so cheap it's more of just like a we're just going to keep reality somewhat close, but it's, it's uh, rent was very cheap. And so they, they give you housing and a studio to work in and some meals um, and uh, just time to, to work and focus. And so for me, a, a big plus in that 
for in those in those three years was okay, I had just finished grad school, um, and I had married and had our first kid, and um, she was very young. Our, our, our daughter at the time, I don't think even she was a year old yet. And moving to Penland, up to that point, I had always just used everyone else's tools and equipment, whether it was the schools or other people's shops and. Um, so right before then, it was, you know, I was in graduate school and using the school's facilities. And so I really didn't have any equipment to speak of. And so to live for three years and not have to worry about overhead as much as you would in the real world, I could dedicate and devote so much more time and energy and money into equipping a shop. And so that was that was a big, a, a huge plus. Um and also just the time, you know, just to be able to focus for three years on your work. And um, I, I do feel like, and, and they, you know, they have their clients and their um, clientele and they bring in collectors and they, they sort of yeah. highlight you and your work and um, you're a face of Penland. So you do have to keep that in mind and, and, you know, visitors come through the, sh- the studio and you, uh, you've got to sort mm-hmm. of uh, explain or have conversations with them about the program and be conscious that you are a face of Penland, but to have, to have those three years to, to just focus on your work. One thing that I did learn from looking back now, um, I had to, I had to adapt, um, quite a bit and it was, it stung for quite a while after leaving Penland and sort of going back into the real world where you've got, real bills to pay now, whether it's a mortgage or rent or groceries or, uh, Mm -hmm. and, and you don't have this pool of, of potential collectors or clients coming through your shop every year to see what they can purchase. And so those first few years out of Penland, (laughs) they were pretty bleak, uh, (laughs) a little rough. Yeah, they were pretty rough. Um, but for the three years that we were there, it was really it was a sweet time, and and was able to equip a shop um, or get that well underway, and and just focus on focus on the work. Um, the one thing that I didn't do while I was there, which I sort of wished I I would have, was I, you know, and it's I don't know. You look back with uh, that experience, but you just you don't have that experience while you're living that out at that time, and so. But I mostly focused on art making, you know, sculpture, paintings, drawings, um, yeah, not yeah. not functional work, and and so that's one thing that I have, I have picked up, and that's mostly what I'm doing now is functional work. But leaving Penland, that was my background. So that those first few years where I mostly was just making artwork after Penland, they that's that stung um, and um, pretty rough years, just not not being able to move a whole lot of whole lot of artwork and so just trying to adapt after that to increase my offerings a little bit and expand the audience so that leads right into the birth of okay goods that's more of the kind of the functional side of of daniel marinelli and the work you do as an as an artist that's right um yeah so maybe you can start with um and i found this really fascinating chatting with you is that okay goods has a meaning. It's not just like, Hey, everything's okay. I mean, talk about the, 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 the origin and the meaning of the name of that side of your work. So I, you know, I never had a, 
business per se, you know, it was just Daniel Marinelli and I was making artwork. And so having to come up with a a business name and going through different, you know, different ideas and iterations. And, and one thing that just kept sticking was, was that whole, the idea that, you know, of, um, sort of overselling yourself and, um, you, you come across businesses where they use superlatives in their business name, whether it's like the best or the, <laughs> yeah. the master so-and-so or, you know, all these things. And, and, um, Miracle used cars. If it's a good one, it's a miracle. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I'm much more prone to try to undersell myself and then over deliver um, as opposed to oversell yourself and then under deliver. And so that whole notion of, okay, you know, it's, it's got, I, I think it's, it's the most used word in the English language, um, or one of the top, if not the top used word in the English language. Um, we use it a lot and, and it has a lot of different, you know, meanings. Like if you could say like, Oh, that's, that meal was okay. Right. Or you could be like, man, that meal was okay. Um, <laughs> it just takes on all these different <laughs> meanings. Uh, and then just diving into the history a little bit. Um, there was a political cartoon back in the 1800s um, and they were making fun of, of Martin Van Buren and how he spoke. And um, one of his sort of constituents was talking about Martin Van Buren. He said, Martin Van Buren's all correct. And they spelled all correct, which would be A-L-L, all correct, C-O-R-R-E-C-T. They spelled it O-L-L. K-O-R-R-E-C-T, all correct. And it stuck, and Martin Van Buren ran with that. And so, yeah, OK has this idea or wrapped around it that it's maybe it's it's just sort of underwhelming, but the origin is that it's all correct. And and so I am trying to undersell and over-deliver, um, but also create things that are all correct as well. Um, and there's a num- number of other different uh, um, things sort of wrapped up in that, but um, that's sort of the, the short version of OK Goods and where that name came from. Uh, yeah, so this that was just sort of a, a result of having to adapt after Penland and just the, mm-hmm. the reality that like I was not selling artwork. I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Um, and especially when I've, I've got mouths to feed and, and okay, but I've been on this path for years. And so I don't want to, I don't want to change direction completely, but how can I slightly skew the trajectory to continue to use the skill set that I've acquired and the tooling and equipment I've invested in just sort of increase a lot of stuff yeah increase my audience and so that's when i started making more and more functional work and work now define functional you know because i I mean that's that's a broad broad thing sure so a lot of what okay goods does and what i'm finding myself um, spending most of my time doing now is um new residential construction uh, architectural components in steel so things like door hardware, door pools, uh, light fixtures, furniture, um, railings, mm-hmm. um, thing, things like that. It has changed uh, the work and my day-to-day has changed uh, a fair amount since 
Penlon and just strictly making artwork. But um, when I when I have some free time or uh, not when I have um, yeah when I have some free time, I will continue to make spec work, artwork, um, sculpture yeah. on the side. So the division between OK Works and Daniel Marinelli, artist, is it? Is OK it, is Goods. It, OK, OK goods. goods. OK, OK Goods. I screwed that up. We'll, <laughs> we'll fix that in the edit. No, um, we won't. We'll keep it. No, we funny. won't. We'll leave it. Yes. Uh, so the, it's it's a nice division because you get to sort of divide your brain in half and go, I make functional work on this side. And I do artistic work on that side. So a lot of people, especially in the woodworking wheel, world, have this real push-pull between making functional objects and making sculptural objects and you know the whole form follows function thing i sort of like the idea you've created this division um between the two which you know they they don't have to be opposites and they don't have to necessarily be opposing forces i am curious though with the architectural work are the architects allowing you the the freedom to design these objects or are they, are you basically working on uh, their drawings? It's a, it's a mixed bag, really. I mean, some, some folks will come to you and they know exactly what they want um, and they'll push across the drawing to you that leaves nothing to interpretation, like down to yeah, what yeah. hardware you're going to use and what fasteners and, and there's some Liberty in that in, in that um, if I make this thing to look exactly like your drawing, you will be pleased. The client will be pleased. I'll get paid. I'll be pleased. And so it's sort of, they've done all the figuring and design work and, and um, how this thing's going to function. They've, they've worked all that out on their end. So there is some Liberty in just going to the shop and making the thing. Um, And then a lot, you know, I would say there are, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag where, you know, and then you'll get architects or designers that come to you and they, they want your input or mm-hmm. they're, they're really going to rely on you for your input and they just have a general idea of what they want, but they're looking to you to sort of button up or run with, with an idea. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, depends on, it depends on the architect. Yeah. They all have their sort of own flavors. Let's talk about an example then. What about the cabinet pulls you did for the Beth Israel Synagogue? Those just, I mean, did you design those or did they? Because that just looks like, to me, something that falls right into your aesthetic. They did that. That was all them. There was nothing there for interpretation. I just had to make what they had come up with. Wow, but you pulled that off well. It's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that being said, you know, they. I, I feel like, architects and and builders they do their homework too and they're looking around to find a subcontractor or some maker in the area that fits Mm -hmm. the aesthetic that they have or fits the aesthetic of the object they designed you know because i don't know if you guys have come across this with commissions but you know there are times where someone will come to you with an idea and you're just not the guy for them you're yeah, just like, yeah. this is not a good, this isn't going to be a good fit. I, A, I don't want to make this work that you want me to make. And that's not <laughs> really in my wheelhouse. Um, I may not do a good job with it, or I may not be efficient in getting right, right. the end product done in a timely manner. And, and yeah, I'm just, I appreciate you looking to have me do it, but I think you'd better, you know, you'd be better off going with this person or, you know, some, someone else. So Oh, I've certainly had that happen before. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, it's also the, it's when an idea is driven by like an architect or a designer, somebody out, you know, on, which is typical in a, in a commission piece and it starts to go in a direction that you think is a uh, back to the bad idea concept you think is either going to be unworkable from a technical perspective or from an aesthetic perspective. I've always been very vocal with my clients that if you want to do this, we can make it work, but I think it's a bad idea. <laughs> and that is Let definitely, <laughs> that has definitely been something that uh, I've driven people away from because I've driven, I've driven clients away. It's because like, this isn't going to work. And I can't commit myself to an idea that's not going to work. So what kind of stuff are you doing now that's in, you know, in that time away from OK Goods? What's, what's your work in your studio look like now? Uh, gosh, OK Goods is, um, it's so, it's such a different part of the brain, right? So it's, with OK Goods comes the reality of things like, insurance and workers comp and uh, quarterly withholdings and sales tax and all this stuff. And, and that does take a lot of, of time and, and just the making of the work also takes a lot of time. And I've got an employee now and my first employee, which um, he's been on since October, I guess, but earlier on when I, when I hired him, I was really freaking out just like, what, what are we doing here? What, what am I doing? Who do I think I am? Um, <laughs> and we've been busy making all this functional work for architects and builders and not having much time to uh, chase out personal ideas. And so we've decided it's just a, when at all possible on Friday afternoons from one to six, little five hour window, we are going to not answer the phone because a lot of times people are already checked out for the week anyway. You don't get a whole lot of phone calls, emails, and sort of go offline and just work on related but personal projects or prototypes or ideas that you want to chase out. It's a recess, if you will, um, from the day-to-day work and the grind and just like, okay, we're going to shift gears. and Because we just weren't having – we just weren't finding the time during the week to – make the work that we wanted to make. Um, and so that was, that's, that's our, that's a, a relatively new idea um, or decision we've made. And so for the last month or so on Friday afternoons, we've been, we've been making personal work. And so f- back to your question, Eric, um, uh, over the last few years, I've made small models of sculptural ideas that I've had out of steel. And um, a lot of times this helps me here again, an analog version that I can hold in my hand and look at and rotate and see from all sides. And that's when I know whether or not I think it's worthy to be held onto and maybe potentially blown up in scale and make a larger version. So I sort of chase out my ideas in a small format first. Um, And so I've had a lot of these sort of small handheld models floating around the shop for a few years now. And, um, have settled on a few and, and have started blowing those up in scale and making larger versions of these. Um, those, those, those pieces, those models are exquisite. Uh, thanks. Rob. They're pretty, they're pretty cool. I've, I've had the good fortune of seeing some of them in person and holding them and it's, they're pretty cool. Yeah. They should be 20, they should be 20 feet long and not, not 
eight inches. We're getting there. We're trying. <laughs> that's, that's our goal. You know, for obviously this is an audio medium. You want to give us a little visual about. Yeah. Talk about some of these models. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about some of these things in a, in a visual sense. So they're sort of like these volumetric shapes, um, enclosed, um, going back to sort of my, my love for math and the analog way to create these drawings. Um, I was getting into figuring out how to create shapes. And this is, again, this is all just sort of by graphing it on paper and, um, figuring out a way to create three-dimensional shapes, but figuring out what those look like flat first before you roll them and create a shape. And so I was plotting points and creating these flat surfaces and what those shapes look like flat first. And then, Mm -hmm. and then they get, they get rolled um, in a slip roller and create these now curved shapes that go together. And so, um, yeah, they're just these sort of, I would say pretty geometric, um, volumetric shapes, just sort of celebrating math and, um, form. They're not, they're they're not a whole lot of, um, narrative necessarily or, or concept. Uh, it's, it's certainly not heavy on concept. It's more just the form and celebrating that form and, and the geometry that, um, I can nerd out on to get to that, to to get to that (laughs) shape. Yeah. Is there any color or just basically the natural metal um, patina? So I, with the large, so the smaller versions are just a black, like a black patina. Um, But the larger versions, and I'm trying to get into more of an outdoor public art um, city square scale of work where this, this could be become a um, sort of public artwork. Um, A lot of this stuff is, being made with a weathering steel. So it'll, it can just go outside and it'll create a nice rust patina. Um, yeah. That core tent, the core tent steel. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, I think, uh, I think we're at a point where we've, we're ready to wrap it up. I'd like to uh, thank Daniel Marinelli for joining us on why make. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me guys. Why make, why make. Yeah. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash why make podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at why make pod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.